Hello, and welcome to AJC Passport, brought to you by AJC, the diplomatic arm of the Jewish community. Each week, we'll chat with experts from around the world to help you better understand the week's headlines and what they all mean for Israel and the Jewish people. I'm your host, Sefi Kogan. Often, it's possible to learn by hearing from people from opposite sides of the political divide. Each person lays out their best argument, and then you can triangulate to figure out what you believe. But another way to learn is to hear the internal conversation within the left or within the right. Many Jews and many AJC supporters had varied and diverse perspectives on last week's Women's March. In this week's episode, we're focusing specifically on two Jewish leaders, both from the left, both supportive of the general aims of the Women's March. What divides them is that one chose to march, and the other chose not to. First up is Carly Pildes, political organizer and contributing editor at Tablet Magazine. Carly, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. So I think you're in a little bit of an odd position because you're someone who's been vocally critical of the Women's March, but you also believe in much of what underpins it. Uh, What is it about the Women's March that you think is worth supporting? I believe that the Jewish community should really be aligning itself with progressive movements for social justice, Uh, that we should be, you know, really including ourselves in those frameworks, and that's in the long-term interest of the community. I, you know, I agree with a lot of the values of the Women's March around feminism, around anti-oppression and racial justice, certainly around, um, you know, some of the LGBTQ rights they've done. And, And, you know, I think I'm in an interesting space because I'm not going to the march. I have not gone. I'm not interested in giving them my you know, financial contribution, but I am very interested in saying we should keep the door open to continue to talk and to see, you know, what potential for further reconciliation there is between members of the Jewish community who feel really attacked and hurt by the march and the march leadership and its new steering committee. And can you, you know, can you lay out for us why it is that you made the decision to not march? A couple things. You know, I think the Women's March has made incredible progress in the past two months. A lot of the things I've really pushed from the beginning for the past two years for them to do, you know, expand their governance and add Jewish leadership to that and add Jewish women to the unity principles and, you know, put out some meaningful apologies like Carmen Perez did in the foreword, a long article talking about, you know, places they failed and how they hadn't addressed anti-Semitism within the organization, you know, in a timely fashion. They've done a lot of that, which I think is great. That said, I still think there's work to be done. I still think there are conversations that need to be had, unpacking that needs to happen. And I didn't feel like Saturday was a deadline for me for that to be done by because the, you know, the fight against anti-Semitism and white supremacy in our country will not be done by the 19th, unfortunately. And... (laughs) these, you know, broader issues. I, I, I think, you know, they've done enough that I think it's important to keep talking and keep pushing and keep having a community back and forth, but I didn't feel ready to put my sneakers on. So 
a number of our listeners doubtless marched, certainly in year one and possibly this year as well. But many, probably including many of the marchers, haven't heard of the Women's March Unity Principles. What are those and why do they matter? So the Unity Principles essentially are a value statement. They lay out, you know, who we are, who we fight for, what we're going to be doing. Originally in 2017, they did not include Jewish women. And the Women's March sort of official response to that was we're centering on women who we feel are most under attack and who, you know, there was racist or other oppressive rhetoric around during the Trump campaign. Unfortunately, that excluded some of the rhetoric that we saw, you know, political advertisements with Jewish stars and wads of cash behind Hillary Clinton that's pretty deeply anti-Semitic. Uh, that sort of was missing from their viewpoint of the unity principles. I pushed really hard for a long time in a variety of articles and, you know, in social media that Jewish women really need to be included. That matters to me for a couple of reasons. One, you know, Jewish women and their voices matter. Our issues matter. Our community matters. Both because, you know, we deserve to be treated with dignity and respect and our history needs to be respected, especially, you know, the history of anti-Semitism. But also because, you know, anti-Semitism, to quote Eric Ward, really animates white supremacy. It's the conspiracy theory that really goes hand in hand with white nationalism. If your goal is to fight white supremacy, then you have to include anti-Semitism in your analysis, and, you know, and in your daily fight to, to break down those oppressive systems. More broadly, instead of beyond the Women's March, I think it's really important that the Jewish community not isolate itself from social justice movements. I think that strategy will hurt us in the long term. And these sort of broad value statement principles are really the wave of the future for a lot of organizing in the nonprofit and advocacy sectors. And I think it's really important that we're in those spaces and we talk about anti-Semitism and have people understand that anti-Semitism really belongs in that sphere, you know, as, you know, a respected and understood problem that people are working to address. You know, people in that world talk a lot about unlearning bad habits or unlearning bias behavior. Anti-Semitism really belongs in that backpack of issues, which is why it matters in terms of, you know, the Women's March itself, and sort of more broadly as progressive movements for justice instead of anti-white supremacist, anti-oppression movements move forward, that they start to see that, you know, Jewish voices really need to be included here and the history of anti-Semitism needs to be included here. I think that, you know, as as someone personally who has followed the development of these issues on Twitter and, and in all kinds of different publications, um, I, I think that, you know, anyone who has followed this issue knows that you personally deserve a lot of the credit for getting, you know, Jewish women added to the, the kind of list of people in the in the unity principles that the Women's March stands for. But, you know, even once they did that, you said, you know, this is not enough. And I agree with you that it's not enough. But I worry that, you know, the organizers, people who sympathize with them could say, well, you know, you're moving the goalposts on us. You said Jewish women needed to be added to the unity principles. We did that. We've taken a few steps in the right direction. And you acknowledge Carmen Perez wrote that piece in the forward, etc. What do we absolutely need to see? Or, or rather, I should say, what do you, as a person who is comfortable on the left, who believes in a lot of the same things that the Women's March stands for, what do you absolutely need to see from the Women's March organizers to be comfortable associating with them in the future? Uh, a couple things. You know, 
any movement leader is going to have bad moments. Any organizer in these movements is going to have moments where they purposefully or not engage in bad behavior. I think it's really important to, instead of thinking of it as the goalpost moving, think of it as you know people deepening their learning and their understanding of these issues. That's not a process that happens overnight. It's not a process that ever ends, right? Not just in terms of the immediate partnership here and there, but like we all live within these systems of anti-Semitism, of white supremacy, of homophobia, of misogyny. We're all going to have moments where we say, oh, maybe I said something that, you know, actually doesn't help to break those systems down. It helps to build them. And now I need to think about that and process that and read about it and see how I can be better in the future. That will continue forever, as far as I can tell. Um, and that's okay. That's good, because we're all getting smarter about these issues all the time. In terms of getting to a place where I personally would want to put my sneakers on in March, a couple things. One, I'd like to see a little more conversation between women's March leaders and outside of the Jewish left and a little more into the Jewish mainstream. You know, I'd love to see them talking to leaders at AJC, talking to leaders at the ADL and trying to understand a broader spectrum of the community. Or if that's not comfortable for them, one thing I've suggested is a listening tour. You know, let's go to synagogue sisterhoods. Let's go to, you know, Hadassah chapters, local spaces where women are talking and, you know, they might get a broader spectrum of Jewish life. I think that's important. I think it's easier to talk to people who are predisposed to agree with you or be friendly to you. I would certainly count myself within that. And sometimes our best learning moments are with people who are a little to the right of us or a little to the right is maybe the wrong, the wrong way of thinking it. But, you know, with a different perspective that we might not be familiar with. I'd like to see a little more accountability around some of the behavior that they've done that really has created these issues. I still hear a lot of, we're being attacked by the media, this is smearing, you know, they're out to get us. But there isn't a they that's out to get you. I, I personally would like to see that conversation shift a little bit from the they. And in their defense, I think there are some frightening people in this world, some real white nationalist, real, real white supremacist, real homophobic voices that attack them. And I understand how real critique could get lost in that mass of hatred and fear. I'd love to see them, you know, take a moment and say a little more broadly and deeply, you're right, we did really wrong things organizationally. And They've done that, but they always do it, and then they sort of walk it back on their personal Facebooks or walk it back on their personal Twitters. I find that really troubling. I'd like to feel like organizationally they're speaking a little more with one voice. Uh, and there are some financial things in terms of I don't feel like the answer of is the Women's March, you know, paying the Nation of Islam Security Service for security has been fully answered. I can understand saying – you know, I don't really like to publicly condemn members of my community. That feels uncomfortable for me. Okay, but then I'd like to see a little more like, is there really financial daylight? That matters, obviously. And if your sort of strategy is, I don't like to condemn people in my community, I like to work with them, then the onus is on the organization to show me how are you holding those people accountable in those spaces? Because if you're not, that's the real problem. To put it more succinctly, there's a lot more beyond the Farrakhan stuff. But to put the Nation of Islam stuff succinctly, there's two things I'd like to see. One, 
I'd like to understand, are they paying for Nation of Islam security services or not? That's an open question. And two, if their principle in life is, we don't condemn people, we work with people, I think, you know, you could probably take me along with that, but friends hold friends accountable. So if you're saying, you know, the Nation of Islam does so much great work with prisons and, you know, with some parts of our community, we don't want to let that go. I want to know when you're with them, are you saying we should talk about anti-Semitism now that we're together? Because that would be my expectation. Right. And and what you said earlier about the way that they have been kind of deflecting criticism, you know, it wasn't at Linda Sarsour who, you know, when Jake Tapper called her out on Twitter or, or something like that, uh, referred to him as face of the alt-right media, something like that, which is just, you know, crazy to hear about someone like Jake Tapper, um, who's about as far from alt-right as it gets. To your point about a listening tour, I think that that's a, a phenomenal suggestion that they should be interfacing more with kind of the mainstream of the Jewish community. In fact, you know, several of our AJC offices on a local level have done that with the local marches. So our LA office just a couple of weeks ago held a very high profile convening of Jewish leaders out in LA with the leadership of the LA march. And it was really productive. It was something that I think there was real value in. And, and I know that we would love to be a part of, of, a, of a productive conversation like that on a broader level as well. I think that's fantastic. And the one thing that I think is great, not about the fact that there's tension between us and the Women's March, the one positive that has come out of this is I think we are starting to see bigger, broader conversations about anti-Semitism and how that shows up in movements. And people are starting to say, this is something we need to learn about. This is something we need to understand better. And, you know, I think that's something the community should lean into. If there are people who say, I don't understand why that's anti-Semitic, it's easy to say, how could you not know that? We know that. But we grew up with a Jewish education. A lot of people never had the opportunity to learn about the deep and complicated history of anti-Semitism in this world. So when people are saying, let's talk, my answer is absolutely, come on over. Can we do Shabbat? <laughs> I love you it. You want to learn a little bit about anti-Semitism? Come on over to my house. <laughs> <laughs> well, I want to come back to that in a moment. But first, to wrap up these questions about the Women's March organizers, where do you think anti-Semitism comes from on the political left? Why is it that people who are so attuned to the challenges of many minorities in this country are so deaf to the concerns of many Jews? Two things. I think anti-Semitism on the left, you know, comes from the same place as anti-Semitism on the right. We live in an anti-Semitic world. I think one misconception that some Jewish people have, especially on the center and the right, is that only Jews are in progressive movements and coming up against bias. That's absolutely untrue. No one in the progressive movement, unfortunately, has been able to truly create a place where they can, as a community, break out of oppressive behavior and bias, because we live in that world, right? That is the reality we're in. No matter how much work you do to build a movement, there will be racist moments. There'll be misogynistic moments, anti-Semitic moments. What's important is creating a language in which we talk about them together and in which we address those together and do that unlearning. And I think it's really important that Jews be a part of that conversation or we'll be left behind. That's one. Two, I think Jews don't fit well into the privilege framework. I think, you know, people learn about white privilege. They learn about male privilege. And I don't think those are things you should run away from. I think we should embrace those conversations and then say, 
you know, of course, as a light-skinned Jew, I have white privilege when I'm talking to a police officer. I acknowledge that. But I want you to understand that the way that oppression functions against me is as a conspiracy theory. And I think understanding that conspiracy theory um, way that anti-Semitism works eludes a lot of people on the left. But I will also say the worst thing we can do is show up and say, no, I don't have white privilege. Well, there's a, maybe you do, maybe you don't. But if you're light-skinned in this country, there's a very good chance you do when you're applying to a mortgage, when you interact with the police. But, you know, if you are honest and open about that, then you can say, and here's how I experience oppression. This is what happened. My synagogue now has four metal detectors and a constant police presence. Let me talk about what that does to me mentally as a person. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, no, of course. And the fact that I, as a Jewish person and a white person, can walk down the street and, you know, feel maybe extra secure when I see the NYPD, that's a little bit of, of white privilege. But that doesn't remove the fact that I may face other challenges in the world because of the fact that I'm Jewish. Absolutely. Um, you have written really movingly about raising a black Jewish daughter. What more can Jewish organizations like AJC do to be welcoming to Jews of color? Uh, a couple things. Firstly, ask more Jews of color, less Kylie Coldest. Um, I'm happy to be asked, more than happy to talk about it, but the, the best knowledge base will always exist with the people who experience it on a personal level, not a motherhood level. That's one. Fair enough. Um, and I certainly don't mean that unkindly. I'm happy you asked the question. Uh, a couple things. You know, first, I think there's a couple things sort of on the institutional level and then on the sort of movement level. As Jewish institutions, we should make sure that we're, you know, creating spaces to have hard conversations about synagogue security is a big touch point. I believe that that will be a hot point in our community for a while. But, you know, how do we create space and say, you know, maybe our synagogue rushed to have this huge police force and there are people in our community that feel frightened by that or feel like they don't even have the space to say, how did that decision happen? And, you know, where was I and where was concern for my kid? So, you know, just making spaces to have those conversations and understanding that they'll be hard and that it's okay for them to be hard. They are hard things to talk about. It is better to talk about them. That's one, creating spaces to have those hard conversations about race, about, you know, how people are functioning within the Jewish community, et cetera, to, you know, make sure we're listening to a broad spectrum of voices. I think there are a lot of people who want to make sure they're inclusive, want to make sure that they're, you know, starting to look at their own community with a better racial justice lens. But, you know, what you don't want to do is tokenize and ask someone to be sort of the education for your whole community. What you want to do is create space for conversation you know, work to educate yourself and, and make sure you're bringing in people within the community, people with expertise, instead of understand what you're going at, as, as opposed to, say, being like, you guys are, you know, the one family in this space. You know, speak for all <laughs> that won't go well. We don't like that, right? Um, and lastly, you know, there are some sort of, I think, on the organizational side, behavior things we'll have to learn, like, Make it clear in your synagogue community and in your professional world that, you know, asking Jews of color, said, oh, what's your story? Does it feel good for people? Uh, you know, sort of start to set those norms and set those norms in conversation with the people that experience those things directly. That's sort of the, you know, when we're having dinner side of it. 
movement-wise, I really believe that the Jewish community cannot isolate itself from movements for justice, movements for racial justice. I think that hurts Jews of color. It hurts Jews. It's not about being transactional. It's about building community and building strength. And it's okay to say, you know, I think you did this thing that's anti-Semitic, and I would like to talk to you about it and about how it hurt me. That's, and when people say that to us, you know, the synagogue, the way it's doing something, it really felt racist to me. You know, that tweet, I, I get the point you're trying to make, but it came off really racist. Say thank you. Thanks for telling me. Um, I'm still learning. We all are. Terrific. Carly, thank you so much for joining us and for sharing your thoughts on these important issues. Thanks so much for having me and, uh, you know, holding out hope that I'll see you at the 2020 Women's March. <laughs> Our next guest is Rabbi Sarah Bassett, Associate Rabbi of Temple Emanuel of Beverly Hills. Before joining the clergy of Temple Emanuel, Rabbi Bassett created New Ground, a Muslim-Jewish partnership for change. Sarah, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Now, you wrote an op-ed a couple weeks ago in the Jewish News of Northern California entitled, I am a rabbi, here's why I'm going to the Women's March. For our listeners who haven't read the article, can you explain why it is that you decided to march in the Women's March in L.A.? Well, in addition to my values as um, a feminist and as somebody who believes in women's equality and that being a primary motivator for me to go, um, I think it's really important um, for us to have the conversation around anti-Semitism and the way that anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism are showing up on the left, that we have a place at the table um, that's really on the most strategic level. Uh, it's better for us to have a voice in the conversation rather than to be yelling and criticizing from afar. I, uh, I just think that's a more effective approach. Now, from my perspective, I think that the Jews who marched largely fell into two camps. There were those who marched even though they have problems with the organizers, maybe like for the strategic reason that you reference. And then there were those who just didn't think the organizers were very problematic. Do you think that that's the right dichotomy there? And if so, what camp do you put yourself in? I would put myself somewhere in the middle between mm-hmm. those two camps. I, I mean, I think that there is a problem with anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism um, in the progressive space. And by the way, it's it's on the right of the conversation as well, yep. right? Neither political camp is, uh, is exempt from this. Um, and that rather than condemning or pointing out a couple of people, I just don't find that to be terribly helpful because I think that this is a more structural problem of anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism that are seeping their way into these movements. Um, So to try to isolate it and say, oh, it's because of these couple of individuals, and if we condemn them, then we solve the problem, I think we're actually missing the larger point of the work that we need to be doing um, in our respective political camps to really uproot um, and to diminish anti-Semitism. Um, and one of the things that I've said that, that hasn't been popular in the progressive circles that I function in is that I think it's really important for people um, who lean politically to the right, right, that they stay in the game as well and that they continue to bring their Jewish voice and Jewish perspective to the game and that there's value in staying at the table. 
if we're serious about fighting anti-Semitism, then we can't just be serious about yelling about it when it's on the other side of the spectrum that we find ourselves on. You know, you could say, well, the Women's March was slow to respond on anti-Semitism. The Women's March hasn't condemned Louis Farrakhan. The Women's March hasn't, um, you know, called out Linda Sarsour for her comments around Zionism. You could also give the narrative of, well, the unity principles did add anti-Semitism. The National Council did add three Jewish women. Tamika Mallory did go on a radio show last week and talk in a deeply nuanced and sophisticated fashion about how anti-Semitism is a real problem in society today. I think the difficulty that we have in engaging in this conversation is that we have to let all of that information in simultaneously, even when it's not convenient to the narrative that we want to tell ourselves, um, and to engage with more nuance in the conversation. And again, to move away from condemnation, to think really strategically about how do we actually want to change the outcome of these conversations? How do we want to lessen and diminish anti-Semitism? What is my best access point and my best leverage to be able to do that? I think that's so important. And that's something that AJC really believes very deeply. There was um, one of the lines in your op-ed that, that resonated with me so powerfully was, you wrote, quote, our fatal flaw on both sides of the political spectrum has been the ease with which we call out anti-Semitism on the other side while turning a blind eye toward it on our own. Can you say more about that? Like, How practically can we fight that impulse to point to anti-Semitism only on the other side of the political divide? Well, I think first and foremost that we just need to be putting less energy and less effort into condemnation of people and of individuals and to start to think more strategically about what's actually going to move the conversation. It can feel really good and really righteous you know, to point out when somebody has messed up and to identify um, their problematic actions. The question becomes, how do we move the conversation from there? And I think that that's where the much harder work begins. Um, when I was engaging in people on social media um, about the article that I wrote, and clearly with plenty of people who disagreed, you know, a lot of the first impulse is for people to write an immediate dismissive accusatory reaction. And my first reaction to that is to say, I understand where you're coming from and I understand your perspective and I respect that. Um, tell me more about X. Tell me more about how you came to believe why. And the simple act of expressing curiosity in their position and understanding tends to be really disarming and to transform the tone of the conversation to be able to look for more space and common ground. I love that. One thing that I have like resolved over and over and over again to try to do, because I'm so guilty of what you described, not in this instance particularly, but you know, for any number of articles that I've read, I keep saying to myself, even if I'm going to do that, Sometimes I want to also try to do more tweets and more Facebook posts that are hakarat hatov, that are like that mm. positive kind of call out. You know, I, I loved what this person had to say. This was a great article, you know, something like that. Um, and yet I still find myself, you know, tilting more and more kind of toward the negative on, on those platforms. So I give you major kudos for trying to change that tone of conversation. 
Yeah. And listen, it's not easy. It's really hard to model that when you feel especially personally under attack. But, um, you know, especially when this is for public view and public consumption, people notice the way that you choose to engage. And if somebody just keeps coming at you with a tone that's accusatory and diminishing and negative, and you keep coming back from a space of engaging curiosity, questioning not from a place of accusation, then other people notice. Um, And that, I think, can really change the tone of conversation that we have on social media. And hopefully that seeps into real life. Sarah, you speak to the importance of building coalitions, of, of you know, reaching out in your everyday work as a rabbi. Is, you know, is, is that something that you kind of bring into your ministry? Is that something that you do regularly? Well, I began my rabbinate um, as the executive director of Newground, a joint Muslim and Jewish organization. And what I realized from that work was, you know, how deeply difficult coalition work is, you know, as many common values and common objectives two communities might share, if you come upon a deeply felt rift or a deeply felt fissure um, that can separate the objectives of those two communities, it feels like it can unravel the whole thing. So it takes a lot of resilience to be able to stay at the table um, and to continue to work through that relationship um, and to retain it even through intense disagreement that feels like it hits the core of your values sometimes. Now, Sarah, in the article, you specifically identify yourself as a rabbi. Did you do anything Mm -hmm. when you went to the march? You know, uh, I'm I'm not sure if you wear a kippah or a talit, but did you wear those things or did you carry a sign or wear a shirt that may have identified you as as a rabbi or or just as a Jew when you were at the march? So I reserve um, both a talit and a kippah for prayer services, but Uh um, I did carry a sign that says, this rabbi prays with her feet. (laughs) Um, And I was uh, up on stage, not in a speaking capacity, but as part of a faith coalition holding that sign um, that identified me specifically as a rabbi and as a Jew. And the reception that you got holding that sign was positive? I received no negative comments on account of the sign. In fact, I ran into a few other people dispersed through the crowd who also had something to the effect of praying with their feet, which, of course, is a reference to Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel um, in his march with Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Um, And so a kind of a coded, explicitly Jewish presence um, that people were bringing. So, no, I didn't have any personally negative um, experiences. So, of course, there was um, rhetoric that came from the stage that uh, upset um, many people in the Jewish community from a couple of isolated speakers. And that was around Israel issues or? Yeah. Um, I think at one point uh, Israel was accused of being an apartheid state. From what I understand, though, you know, I don't have any transcripts of anything. I think that right. there were two um, two speakers that said things that were problematic. Uh-huh. How did your congregation feel about your decision to march? Um, so I got a tremendous amount of support um, from the vast majority of my congregation. And there are a few people that were concerned about my rationale um, and my decision to um, participate. Um, One of the folks who expressed concern did so on on social media, and that turned into an external conversation. Um, And again, like that's been my approach with 
any justice work that I do, which is if somebody is troubled by it, um, then shaming them and saying, well, you don't understand the agenda or you're not progressive enough or to just dismiss them, again, to approach them and ask with curiosity um, to find where those places of common um, belief might actually be. And they're generally more robust than, uh, than you would initially think going into the conversation. Now, the Los Angeles Women's March is a separate entity from, from the one that took place in Washington, led by Tamika Mallory and Linda Sarsour and that whole group of organizers. If it hadn't been, would your decision have been any harder? Or maybe you would have landed in the same place regardless, but do you think that would have been a different calculus? Not only would I have landed in the same place, but I think that people kind of um, might have falsely calmed themselves of their participation, that nothing was going to happen, that nothing was going to go wrong because this was a separate march. But again, I go back to the original point that there is an undercurrent of anti-Zionism and anti-Semitism that infects both the left and the right. And, you know, a couple of leaders making promises that something's not going to happen on stage or that they've done their best to vet the speakers, that's not going to prevent this kind of sentiment from seeping up to the surface. So um, not only would I not have changed my mind about participating in the National March, um, but I think all the more so. Um, it's important to show up in those spaces where we find the conversation to be more difficult. Mm -hmm. You attended uh, a discussion with the executive director of the Women's March uh, Los Angeles hosted by AJC's LA office, right? I did. And do you think that that kind of a conversation is helpful? What kind of an impact do you think that those discussions can have? I think that's AJC at its best um, when it's able to facilitate those behind-the-scenes quiet conversations where we can take off our megaphones and not have to put on a, you know, a particular stance that our communities expect of us and really be um, clear about what our fears and our hopes are. Um, and I think that it led to an honest conversation where we understood the tensions and the difficulties faced by the Los Angeles Women's March and what they were trying to do to address these sentiments that had been present in years past. Well, like you, we appreciate the value of those conversations. And like you, we hope to see many, many more people engaging in their own side of the political spectrum and making sure that we can retain or bring back sanity to the political conversation. Sarah, thank you so much for joining us today. It has been my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Now it's time for our closing segment, Good for the Jews, where each week I share one final thought about a recent development in the world and try to answer that age-old question. Is it good for the Jews? Martin Luther King Jr. Good for the Jews? If all Martin Luther King Jr. ever did was be a heroic crusader for civil rights in this country, Dayenu, it would have been enough. He would have been good for the Jews. But he was so much more than that. Even on the issues of utmost concern to the Jewish community, 
He cultivated a public and loving friendship with Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel and other Jewish leaders. He addressed AJC when we presented him with the American Liberties Medallion in 1965. He spoke out and stood up for Israel, declaring that, quote, peace for Israel means security and that security must be a reality. He rebuked others within the civil rights movement for promoting anti-Zionism. He condemned anti-Semitism in the U.S. and spoke up for Jews trapped in the Soviet Union. Were he still alive, MLK would have turned 90 this week. Each year at this time, people across the political spectrum try to lay claim to his legacy. No one can say for sure what he would have believed on many contemporary political issues. But one thing is certain. During his life, Martin Luther King Jr. was a staunch friend of the Jewish community and of Israel. And today, his memory is good for the Jews. You can subscribe to AJC Passport on iTunes or on Stitcher. Follow us on SoundCloud or learn more at AJC.org passport. The views and opinions of our guests don't necessarily reflect the positions of AJC. We'd love to hear your views and opinions or your questions. You can reach us at passport at AJC.org. If you like this podcast, be sure to rate it and write a review to help more listeners find us. Thank you for listening. I'm your host, Sefi Kogan. This episode is brought to you by AJC, the American Jewish Committee. Our producer is Kukan Doe. Our sound engineer is TK Broderick. Tune in next week for another episode of AJC Passport.